0: Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are, or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears, kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is
1: weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris. And I'm Kyle. And this week we are going back to what is uh, quickly becoming probably my favorite decade um, to cover on this show, the 40s. There's so many great things to talk about, even when the films aren't so good. Um, So I was happy to see, uh, to hear you decide on this category, which was best director 1944, um, in which you had you know you inflicted Wilson on us, uh, and we'll have to talk about that <laughs> later. But um, why did you why did you decide to go with this year and this category?
2: Well, it is a juicy era uh, in terms of Hollywood, but uh, and we've never discussed 1944 before either. So this is the first time we're doing this particular year. But the main reason I have chose this category is because of Wilson, and it's because I've not seen Wilson or hadn't before we came to do this episode. Uh, so it was a massive blind spot for me, given the amount of Oscar wins it got, the high profile categories it was nominated in. And in this year, I think the director lineup is much better than the Best Picture lineup. And that mm-hmm. that's true of a lot of years, actually. Um the directors end up having better taste, and we get a couple more interesting movies in this bunch that couldn't manage to crack the best picture lineup. Um, and I also wanted to revisit Going My Way because it's been an age since I'd seen it, and I had hoped I would enjoy it more on a second viewing. So <laughs> tune in, everyone, to see whether that happened. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, that's uh, why uh,
1: your your phrasing suggests that it. Didn't change much, but we'll get to it. What um, did
2: you think watching all these again, these particular films?
1: Um, quite interesting, because I had not seen um, them in quite some time either. Probably the most recent before this was Laura, and even that was a few years ago. Um, so coming back to them and watching them again, the last time I watched them, I think, was in late 2015, when I was writing my Best Picture blog. Um, and of course that only covered three of them So uh, it was interesting Going back uh, to this year And seeing these again And the nominees yeah, The nominees were Billy Wilder for Double Indemnity Otto Preminger for Laura Alfred Hitchcock for Lifeboat Henry King for Wilson And the winner Leo McCarry For Going My Way So we begin I suppose with Double Indemnity, which um, went 0 for 7 at these Oscars uh, rather, I think, rather unforgivingly um, and regarded by many as the first film noir.
2: Yeah, and this was adapted from the novel by James M. Cain, but it was another novelist that did the screenplay. Uh, Raymond Chandler wrote the script and by all accounts, had quite a difficult relationship with Wilder um, and they pretty much hated each other and I think Wilder said to Chandler, you know, you can't write a screenplay. You've got no idea how to structure a screenplay. So that didn't go down well Um, and all sorts of um, back and forth, letters of complaint to the studio. Uh, But eventually they they kind of uh, got their act together and we ended up with this film, which... It's probably what people remember when they remember the term film noir. Um, But, you know, it's got all of those elements to it. And, you know, we're going to discuss Laura, which has elements to it as well, I think, uh, of that. But what did you think about the framing device? Because, you know, the decision to let us know from the beginning what's, essentially what's happened, that it's all gone wrong. Do you think that's a wise move?
1: Um, I think it is, yeah. Um, And I think that, again, it kind of became the prototype for later Noirs to kind of open with this, uh, after the collapse of the plan and when the protagonist or whoever is, you know, stumbling in gunshot, I think it's a great opening. It creates a kind of, it makes you lean in right away to figure out what's going on with this character. Um, The fact that he's in an insurance office, I think, adds an extra layer of mystery to it. Like, he's not a cop, he's not a gangster, he's just an insurance salesman. So, what's he doing uh, with a gunshot wound? I think it's great. Um, I also think that, you know, given the time and given the fact that this was a code era, film um it doesn't spoil anything for us to know that the criminal plot is going to go wrong because of course it has to so why not open with this i don't think it spoils anything i think it i think it really makes the opening uh kind of come alive and it allows for narration which is another you know another trope of the noir genre
2: yeah i think obviously with the code it yeah, we we know they're not going to ride off into the sunset, um, but I think maybe part of the decision to put you know put the voiceover and the framing device in is, is to explain the events leading up to the murder because there's this very short you know period of maybe two three minutes where Walter's plotting to kill Dietrichson and we get all of the little things that he's doing, getting the suit, getting the cast all of that business. Um, and, you know, maybe with this being Chandler's first script, there's an element where, you know, he he doesn't want to have that play out to the audience, you know, it maybe trust the audience too much in that way. Um, and that this is more of a style choice uh, for, you know, what would become the film noir. Um, and voiceover, obviously a huge part of, of noir movies. But it just means that the movie's a bit more predictable than it could have been, but I think in terms of dramatically most of the fun is in seeing everything unravel and um in the aftermath and and Barton's sleuthing um and thoughts on you know Edward G. Robinson we've spoke about this before, maybe unlucky to get a like not get a supporting actor nomination here
1: uh. Um. Definitely unlucky. Um, I would have replaced Monty Woolley with him very quickly. Um, And, yeah, because his character is vital, and he plays it really, really well. Um, So I definitely think he was robbed of a nomination here, and, you know, Fred McMurray too, while we're on the subject. So... (sighs)
2: Well that's baffling given the other nominees. But yeah. and um, and of course we've got, you know, the example here, the ultimate example of the femme fatale. You know, I remember when I was started doing film at college and this was the this was the example presented. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of femme fatales, she's sort of the original one. And um the film very much has this cautionary message at its heart that lust is weakness and the female of the species is deadlier than the male and all that sentiment. Mm. But I was never really rooting for Phyllis. You know, I I feel like the warning signs were there <laughs> in terms of Walter, you know, from the beginning and, you know, bless him. He just can't see past his uh, desire. Like the way she talked about a stepdaughter from the beginning was always quite, troubling i think because uh, whenever you saw her she was like so lovely and it was sort of like well why didn't she like the stepdaughter so yeah um but those of you who listen uh to the podcast regularly will know that chris is not a barbara stanwick fan <laughs> are we gonna get some rare words of positivity for barbara stanwick here
1: i suppose I, I can't be entirely anti Barbara Stanwyck in this movie. She is very good in it. Um, I still don't think she's anything spectacular. Certainly, of the three leads, um, I think she's least deserving of an Oscar nomination. She's the only one that got one. Um, but, as you say, she is the original femme fatale here, Um and she she does play it quite well. She does get a lot of, like, nice, you know, evil looks that we get when the other characters aren't looking. When she kind of, like, drops the, woe is me, my life is so horrible act. And we kind of get, we get the a look behind the mask. And I do like those moments. And I think she has a good, um, she gets some good facial acting in there. So, While this movie didn't make me a fan of Barbara Stanwyck, and if maybe given time, like, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, I could probably come up with a list of actresses who I would have cast that might have been better. Um, I can't say she's bad in it. That would be a stretch.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think she's great in the film, especially more when Phyllis's true intentions become a little bit clearer. Like I loved her, loved her in the last scene where she seems to realise that she actually does love him or if not love him, that maybe he was the one that suited her all along. Um, of course, you could read that Phyllis is acting again in that moment, if you know. Um, but I kind of felt that that was genuine and I do, you know, think that there were a lot of looks that she gives um, that betray her real attent- intentions throughout. Because we don't see what Lola tells us about trying on the veil and the history with the the mother and things like that. So we can't fully believe her in that way, necessarily. She could easily be making that up. But I think even if you didn't have that, there were elements to Stanwyck's performance that suggested. that Something's just not right Down underneath Yeah But of, of course she was the only one Of the three who'd, who'd Had a nomination before as well So um, She was a, very much An Academy favourite by this point
1: mm-hmm. But of course the other two Never even got one uh, No Robinson and McMurray Pretty unforgivingly, Unforgivably I seem to remember when we talked about the swarm uh, back in our '78 costume design episode. I may have mentioned that that was a golden opportunity to give Fred McMurray a late career supporting nod, uh, like they did with a stare in *The Towering Inferno*. Um, shame, shame they missed that.
2: And um, the apartment—he's in that too, right? That could have been a
1: oh yeah nomination. It for definitely him. should have been a supporting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um. I want to say I loved the Oscar-nominated score from Miklós Russia, the Hungarian composer, who won a few Oscars in his career and was really prolific in this category for nominations. But I loved the music, and in general, I loved the direction too.
0: hmm
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. The music, uh, just to touch on, it, is very, very good. Of course, you know, this was one of those years where they just nominated every movie for score. <laughs> uh, there's like 30 nominees between musical and dramatic or comedy. It's pretty ridiculous. We'll have to do one of these categories one of these years, maybe like a a five-episode stretch where we just do all of these <laughs> score nominees. Um, no, not for long yeah, th- though. <laughs> no, that's true. yeah. Well, it's like the one movie they left out. Um, but Wilson, for whatever reason. I will get to it. Um, <laughs> and the direction is, yeah, the direction is fantastic. Um, Billy Wilder really um, puts a lot of care into his compositions and his framings. Um, and he's helped a, he helped a great deal by the cinematography by, you know, John Sates um, that... Again, this kind of like creating the template for future noirs as they go, which is pretty pretty phenomenal how much they managed to nail it uh, on the first try.
2: Yeah, I think there's some really inspired moments from Wilder. I love that we don't see Walter kill Dietrichson, and instead we get this close-up of Stanwyck as cool as you like, and I think she's great in that moment too. Uh, the entire sequence with the um, on the train, I think it's extremely tense. And that final showdown between Walter and Phyllis, that shot of uh, Walter coming in through the door and her on the sofa is amazing. And I'm pretty mixed on Wilder overall, as we touched on when we did The Apartment. You know, I think it's... It, very much hit and miss with him but this is probably my favorite nomination that he got in the best director category and yeah i I thought it was one of a kind in a way um
1: i i don't know i mean this is one of my favorite films anyway um but i think he has a pretty strong best director resume i mean the last weekend sunset boulevard uh The Apartment, others. I mean, he got nominated for Some Like It Hot, too, I think. so.
2: Yeah, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, but definitely, yeah, this is a very strong effort. Um, And I also like the, speaking of framing at the very end, right before, right after um, Walter gets shot, but then as they embrace and then he shoots Phyllis, but we hold on. We hold on his close up while she just kind of slumps in his arms. I thought that was a good bit of framing as well. Very cold. Yeah. Uh, so the next we move on to yeah another noirish kind of film. Otto Preminger's Laura. Um, Otto Preminger, of course, uh, often a bridesmaid, never a bride. With the Academy, this was one of several of nominations of his that um, were unsuccessful. And also another, uh, um, we talked about the amazing Clifton Webb's supporting actor nominated performance in um, The Razor's Edge a few episodes ago. And here we see him again with another nominated performance uh, as a very similarly kind of devilish character, silver-tongued insult machine here. And he's great again. Just want to get that, mention that off the top, Clifton Webb, amazing in this film.
2: Yeah, we've done a lot of singing of praises of Clifton Webb over the last couple of months, but he's just great. It's actually a more similar performance than I remembered um, to the one in The Razor's Edge, but it does have that element of obsession that works for the character of Waldo, and Apparently, the studio did want somebody younger along the lines of Gene T and his age and maybe conventionally more attractive, and somebody not gained real life, um, as that was frowned upon at that time. Um, but Preminger did put his foot down, and, and as an example of somebody's first two nominations, I think you could do a lot worse than Clifton Webb's. Uh, The best actor nomination for Sitting Pretty is less successful from memory, but those first two are very high quality.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, very, very good idea from Otto Preminger to stick to his guns here, because I think that the character wouldn't have worked if he was the same age as Laura, because it wouldn't have had that kind of uneven power dynamic that... Makes it work. Um, so definitely casting an older gentleman uh, in that role definitely was a a uh, um, uh, better decision. So, and who else could have played that role?
2: Exactly, exactly. Um, but I think th- this production was a bit fraught. Um, Ruben Mamoulian was given the sack by Otto Preminger, who was producing the movie. Um, and he saw all the, the rushes and, and saw all the actors were um, giving off-kilter performances and Mamoulian just wasn't doing it right. And I think we'll trust... I'll trust his judgment here anyway, because... Um, not to get rhapsodic about Laura, but I do think this might be the best movie we've ever discussed on the podcast, having watched it again, and probably one of the greatest twists in the history of cinema, I would say.
1: hmm Yeah, I agree. It, I mean, it is amazing, and I loved the way Preminger uh, presents the twist. <laughs> that the, it, it's not even presented as a shocking twist. It's just, she just comes home. So...
2: Cush, casually as you like, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you know, why wouldn't she come home casually, right? Um, so even though we're kind of seeing everything up to that point, we're kind of seeing it through Dana Andrews' uh, detective's perspective, that moment is presented kind of from Laura's point of view, even though the camera is definitely not her point of view. You know, she just comes home. There's no musical cue. There's no, like, fast zoom in on her face. She just comes into her apartment, and that's it. I love it. I love that moment. And I think a genius of Preminger to, to do it that way.
2: Yeah, it's so understated. There's Dana Andrews, whiskey in hand, virtually bowing to a portrait. I actually shouted, no way, when she came in. I was like, because I, I had seen this before, but I'd completely forgotten about that twist. And I was like, wow, what a twist. Um, and it's pretty much bang on halfway through as well. Yeah. Which I think is, is really good. It's a really brilliantly constructed screenplay. And it's very much pitched as a before and after. And, you know, the introduction of Laura as a reality rather than a memory changes the film. Um, She's no longer romanticised and the characters start to become who they really are, I think, after that moment. Whereas before, they'd mostly been pretending or giving across an impression of themselves. But... Her introduction as a fully-fledged character in the movie really does galvanise everything. And, yeah, I thought, you know, this was a really, really tight work um, because the novel's in five different sections and narrated by five different people, the five main characters. Mm -hmm. And I think considering how fragmented the novel is in that way, the script brings the story together together really beautifully. It's a hell of a whodunit on the face of it. I think guessable in terms of who the culprit is, uh, given that pretty much the main motives for murder are love, money, or to silence the victim. Um, And, you know, because of that, the strongest motive is who's eventually done it. But You know, the identity of the killer I don't think is is always the most important part of a mystery and the how and the why is sometimes just as vital and the reasoning behind it holds up very well in this instance and it adds a really sinister edge to the ending. Um, So, yeah, really great movie.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, I think that unlike a lot of movies that, where the reveal of who the killer is can sometimes come across as a bit, um, sometimes as a cheat, because um, like the, the movie like deliberately withholds information so that you go on the wrong track. I think this movie, what was that one? The Spiral Staircase was guilty of that. Um, we talked about that a while back. This one gives us everything we need to know, and I think that it's obviously it reveals plot details and and the shotgun and everything at the right moment. But it gives us everything we need to know about the characters to make uh, judgment. And so that when we do find out who did it, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's paced and scripted and revealed perfectly. Um, I also it's another reason why casting Clifton Webb, I think, was so good, because he wasn't really known, right, he hadn't appeared in a movie in over a decade. he was more known as a Broadway actor um so he didn't have any kind of baggage, I guess, like where the audience would expect him to be the killer and of course Vin- Vincent Price kind of has that kind of sinister, sleazy edge to him at all times. Um, so that's a nice bit of misdirection, but of course he is, he is passably charming as a, as a user of women in this film. Uh, so he's great. And of course we get Judith Anderson, um, popping in and out as Anne Treadwell and she's always a treat.
2: And she's obviously famously a villain too. So yeah, the casting really makes sense. I think any of the main characters could have done it and Mm -hmm. it's sort of like when you start to think, oh, I actually think it might be this person, the film catches up to that too. It's not a situation where you, you know, guess in 20 minutes before um, who it is and then the film eventually catches up to that. The film's very with the audience, I think, in that way. Um, It's not. It's more of a mystery than a noir. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a bit more restrained, which could be due to the sensibilities of Preminger. You know, it it does have this hard-boiled detective character, but Dana Andrews detective isn't particularly much of an agent. I would say for the audience, I feel like he's just sort of been swept away in the journey too. And, Gene Tierney is unequivocally the lead of the movie without, you know, really being in that much of it. It's because it's sort of her character that affects everything, really. Um, but yeah, I think Preminger's the way that he shoots it feels more patient and measured, and it helps that the film is mostly uh, interior with interior scenes, and the art direction is stunning. And I think adds a dimension to the movie itself, actually. I th- thought it was amazing. And the last shot of the movie with the broken clock, uh, which had been given to Laura by Waldo, as this monument to their shattered friendship, it's, it's just really poignant. There's some really intelligent direction throughout.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. It's uh It's kind of encapsulates everything I love about Preminger, and I I like so many of his other movies. I think he's a fantastic director, but this one is probably his most perfectly realized uh, film. In a quite a long career.
2: Yeah, and we've not done many uh, years where Preminger was nominated. We've still got to do fifty-nine Anatomy of a Murder. We've not done many years where Hitchcock was in with a, a show either. We've still not done 1954. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, I think the most interesting thing for me is it's very, very true to its mystery roots. Not a single scene feels like it shouldn't be there. It's 88 minutes. It doesn't feel like it needs to be a moment longer. It just... I think pretty much as close to a perfect movie as you can get.
1: Mm -hmm. And it rightfully won for its cinematography. Yeah. Um, And kind of weirdly was not nominated for editing, uh, which is pretty weird. Um, And unfortunately lost all of its other nominations, mostly to Going My Way. Uh, So...
2: Yeah, and didn't get a Best Picture nomination either, but that feels like uh, it might have been fairly close to that and maybe lost out because it wasn't Fox's big movie of the year, which was uh, Wilson. So it's it's sort of like, you know, maybe there wasn't room for it. Because at that time, I think people were very loyal to the studios and I'm not sure if the extras could vote still at this point, but, um, yeah, I think maybe, uh, it was crowded out by, by Wilson in that way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this was after the point where extras could vote. Otherwise, you know, Walter Brennan would have had six Oscars by this time. (laughs) All right. Uh, from one, unfairly unsuccessful director to another, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Lifeboat. This was one of his five unsuccessful Best Director nominations um, and probably one of his more experimental films as well, where he really kind of sets himself a challenge of telling a whole story in a single in the space of about, what, five square meters or something like that.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's experimental in the way that it's made, but I think it comes in this interesting period for Hitchcock where he worked a bit more closely with the major studios and David Selznick and, you know, I think Lifeboat ended up running over time and costing quite a bit more, but overall it's probably more mainstream for him and less genre-focused than he usually is. Um, And I think in this sort of period where he did Foreign Correspondent and Spellbound and this, and the, the parodying case, it's maybe a bit more of a mixed bag in terms of quality, but Lifeboat is on the good end of things, I think.
1: I agree. I, I really liked it the first time I watched it, and I liked it again, revisiting it here. I think that, um, yeah, it's definitely one of his most straightforward films. Um, Of course, it is very much of the time. It has the broad cross-section of, you know, hawks and doves and liberals and and conservative political views and all that kind of thing, um, all kind of orbiting around the German captain who, you know, kind of... Brings everything to the surface and is just, oh, he's just such a troublemaker, you know. I I I don't think like you you can't really think I can't really think of him as an enemy combatant or anything because he's just so goofy all the time and he just seems to be enjoying himself throughout the whole thing. That he's just kind of this goofball, and so I think that was an interesting decision to. A d- interesting direction to take the character.
2: Well, it is a bit like um, Peter Ustinov's just wandered into your lifeboat, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's that kind of vibe. But like, I thought it was interesting when reading upon the film that there was apparently controversy over the portrayal of the, the German captain because they thought it was too flattering. And... I'm not sure I agree with that assessment. You know, I'd much rather they humanise the enemy in some way rather than what they do at the end with the young German soldier who's from the supply ship, who says, aren't you going to kill me? Which then allows someone to say, oh, you're all animals. And and that's when it gets into propagandist territory, Um Mm-hmm. which you can understand given that the war was still going on and animosities very very um, closely felt. But overall, I preferred the U-boat captain and thought he was a bit more realistic um, as a character. And it also allowed for debate on the lifeboat between the other characters. So it was very much a catalystic role where it's more about what he represents than how evil the character is, necessarily.
1: Yeah, and I definitely think that it's hard to say that he was treated well, though U-boat captain, he ends up betraying them and then getting beaten and thrown off the boat. Um, So I think that he's definitely not portrayed in a positive way, Um, constantly scheming, constantly... Doing things, but you're right. He is humanized, and I think that's important. Um, And it's not like this was the only movie to do that with its German characters. So I don't know why people would get upset about this movie of all of all of them. But yeah, then the end of it. The end of it goes way overboard with the propaganda, and it definitely, uh, if you'll forgive the expression, kind of sinks the movie for me in the last like five minutes. Um, But. Not enough to make me dislike the whole movie, and I think overall it's quite good. Um, but just yeah, those those last few minutes were a little hard to stomach.
2: Yeah, because mostly the drama unfolds in a really engaging way, and it's it's interesting how reasonable people behave for the most part. You know, given the circumstances, it's a very much a feels like a deliberation, and. I think there's something inherent about this particular era that dictates some sort of order and it's that sense of order that gives the film a bit more structure and it's a lot about the strategy going on on board the boat and I think the acting helps that. I was really impressed with the acting. I think the actors work really well together. I'm not usually a supporter of William Bendix in anything. However, <laughs> I like him in this. I think given that he was nominated for Wake Island a couple of years before this, it could legitimately have happened here for him. He probably gets the beatiest supporting role, supporting actor role in this. Um, but the whole cast is good, um, the head of which is Tulula Bankhead, who's just other level, I think.
1: Yeah, she's amazing in it from start to finish um i like the plot thread of her continuously losing her possessions as the as the story goes on kind of mirroring her you know kind of awakening as a a socially conscious human
2: yeah yeah i just love that everyone else is looking so bedraggled at the beginning and like it's It's like Connie's just welcoming them to a cocktail party. It's just (laughs) iconic. And then there's so many like withering looks and really diva delivery of the lines in the early section of the film that's just so wonderful. But the performance does have more to it than that. The film goes in quite a psychologically sticky direction and she's a big part of that because in many ways... Connie is kind of the film's symbol of survival and of determination. It's her that eventually gets them to snap out of it when they're losing hope near the end. So she's, you know, in many ways, she's the strongest person on the board. And Bankhead did win the New York Film Critics Circle's Best Actress Prize in 1944, and was apparently expecting a, an Oscar nomination to follow, uh, which it didn't. Um, and I think in her New York Film Critics winning speech, she said, Darlings, I was wonderful, or something like that, <laughs> which is just so on brand for her and the character. Yeah. Um, but she should have been nominated for this, you know, to think they they ended up going for Miss Parkington and Mr. Skeffington. It kind of feels like they were just going for the most famous actresses at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of gets kind of gives that sense. Um, and yeah, she definitely should have been in the best actress field. Uh, if not winning, I'm not sure I'd give her the edge over Ingrid Bergman, but she should have been in there.
2: More on Bankhead as well. She was wild and outspoken and called herself ambisextrous and uh, (laughs) she was at the top of the Hays Code list of actors unsuitable for the public um, because of her morality Uh, so definitely a character and um, for anyone wanting to check out more of her she plays Catherine the Great in A Royal Scandal the year after this which is this frothy chamber drama co-directed by Ernst Lubitsch and Otto Preminger. And she's really great in that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And also just to mention, she had, a, uh, she had a part in fostering children and rescuing families from the Spanish Civil War and World War II. So she was active in um, humanitarian causes as well uh, throughout her life, which was also pretty cool.
2: Yeah, it's it's a real shame that she didn't get more screen credits, but I think she's predominantly known for her theatre work.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So what about Hitchcock then? You mentioned we're in this very confined space, and it seems like that's the way he wanted it, right?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I. It seems like he almost wanted to like set himself a challenge. Uh, because he has a like he has a style, and it's interesting to see that style in this kind of confined space. Um, so we do get some of the uh, classic Hitchcock elements, um, lots of close-ups, lots of long lingering reaction shots, um, long scenes of. See, seemingly inconsequential dialogue and action that nevertheless reveal character and and do move the story along. So I, I really like his direction here. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's an interesting idea, and he kind of rises to the challenge very well.
2: Yeah, considering it's a one setting movie, he gets a lot out of it visually lots of zoom ins as well. Um, really interesting zoom ins that are sort of Mm
0: -hmm.
2: not level. It's sort of like zooming in from an angle. Um, and, and some interesting contrasts too. And the fact that the camera doesn't leave the boat really does entrench us into their journey. And I think, you know, we've talked about Rebecca and how flashy that was. And, um, you know so much flashy flare type uh, flare type camera work which is not necessarily what you get with this but i think on a technical level it's really uh, impressive for him but if you know not as memorable as some of his other work on other films
1: yeah it does it also lacks some of the like there's no MacGuffin or anything like that; those little plot touches that you get in a lot of other Hitchcock films. So that's interesting as well. Um, although he did have a pretty ingenious way of working his cameo in, uh, appearing in the in the advertisement in the newspaper about twenty five ish minutes in. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It's, um. The when uh, I think. What's his name? Gus is reading the newspaper. Uh, There's an ad for a weight loss program or something on it. And Hitchcock is the model in the advertisement.
2: (laughs) I think I read that he was thinking of being like somebody in the sea, just drifting by. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's definitely a more inventive way to get yourself into the movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, didn't didn't Tarantino do something like that and kill Bill? I think he's like one of the dead people at the club that, that the bride kills when she kills all the people in Japan. I think at one point one of the bodies is Tarantino, but you don't see his face or anything, so it's kind of a similar idea there.
2: Uh, but obviously Hitchcock never won. Um,
1: yeah, Hitchcock never
2: won. It's a bit of a travesty, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, when you think about the movies that he was nominated for, um, but maybe just like um, just like O'Toole, he just was always up against the wrong people in the wrong year, you know. Um, I mean, in 1940, it was Rebecca, and that was the uh, uh, Ford one for The Grapes of Wrath. And even though I think Hitchcock should have won for Rebecca, um, I can't really fault the Academy for choosing Ford. Um, And then the year after this was Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend. I'm not going to argue that. 54 was Kazan for On the Waterfront. And then 60 was Wilder again uh, for The Apartment. So, yeah, just uh, unlucky years.
2: I mean, I'm not an apartment fan, so I would happily see him win in 1960. But, yeah, apart from that, he's lost his strong work. Um, And, I mean, I'm not a huge Lost Weekend fan either, but I don't don't like Spellbound that much. So that's not exactly an egregious one for me.
1: I'm going to have to do, I feel, a 45 episode coming. (laughs)
2: <laughs> bring it on
1: <laughs> alright speaking of bringing it on I guess we should talk about Wilson since this was after all the reason we're doing the uh, episode so uh, how, did, how did you find it
2: well I wish I could say <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised um, with the quality of the film I wasn't, I <laughs> feel myself strangely aligned with Winston Churchill, who was at a screening of the the film at the White House in 1944, and was so unimpressed, he went to bed, so <laughs> to be honest, I think that says it all, I, while the movie's not terrible, I can kind of see it as a bit of a cure for insomnia, <laughs> in that way. Um, it just reminded me of watching Dr. Doolittle, where I was just left wondering how they managed to make such a handsome-looking film that's essentially utter drivel. You know, it, in many ways, I think there are some great achievements, in certainly in the look of the movie, but the sheer disparity between how great it looked and how little it offers... As a window into the person it's about threw me off so i do think it fails to tell us much about the man and instead opts to go with this very heavy duty biopic troll from one political event to the next to the next
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it just kind of meanders through his career like a whistle-stop tour, and it's like every scene is just an excuse for a monologue. Um, and he always seems to have one ready to go. Like, no matter who he's addressing, he's giving this grandiloquent speech about, you know, truth, justice, and the American way or whatever. Um, it has some really pointed propagandistic elements to it, notably his, you know, uh, Philippic against the German ambassador. You know, they'll just, you know, where they just said to hell with uh, Wilson, let's just say what we want to say to the Germans now. You know, it's just kind of over-the-top ridiculous propaganda elements there.
2: It's very sudden as well, isn't it? Like, on his part, he just suddenly turns. Yeah, I think that there's a moment fairly late in the story, which I think just typifies everything, where his second wife, Edith, is effectively the president. Mm -hmm. He's had a stroke. She's like this proxy president. And wouldn't you think that that'd be a potentially fascinating thing to discuss within this film? you know, the fact that there's a woman uh, making decisions on behalf of the country in, you know, 1912 or whatever it is. But no, it's just glossed over. Let's move on. And I think that just typified for me how unconcerned the film is with really digging into the Wilsons as a family and discussing how progressive he was or wasn't. Because... There's nothing individual in terms of the plot for either wife, either daughter. Um, And that's quite rich of the film, really, because it's painting him very much as a family man. And yet it's refusing to explore that properly. And you even get really extraneous bits of dialogue where it's not him having a monologue. The wife then goes... Off on one and starts saying, you know, oh, but you've always believed that all men are equal, <laughs> as she said in your speech at so and so place in 1907. <1907." laughs> think, And at that point, it's like, come on, guys, I wait. Like, steady on with this. It's getting really heavy handed and obvious the way you're trying to insert facts into the film. How about let's talk about the relationships a bit more?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of Abe Lincoln in Illinois when we talked about that film, but at least that did seem to want to examine Abraham Lincoln as a person um, outside of the presidency and not just rewriting his dialogue, you know, with the Encyclopedia Britannica open to his entry so they can just drop in these factoids, you know, like you were saying Um, completely unrealistic, completely ridiculous. And this film, like yeah, loses all of that. The only time we see his family is when they are, his daughters are just praising him for his amazing progressive values and his political savvy and his achievements and blah, blah, blah. And just awful, awful dialogue throughout. um, Somehow this film won for its uh, screenplay, which is baffling to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm on board with with some of its wins, but definitely not the screenplay win. Um, it was slightly educational. Like, as a non-American watching this, I, I didn't know that the U.S., many in the U.S. weren't happy with the League of Nations, for example. That was something the film taught me, if that's accurate, or it was something the film presented to me in a different way that I knew um, from the history books, because over here it's very much heralded as a great achievement in the history books, which you can understand since, you know, it was um, largely our war. Um, But other than that, nothing came as a surprise. It was very flat dramatically. I don't know how they managed to drag the film out to two and a half hours either. Um it's actually quite an achievement how they managed to do that.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's another win I don't think I'm on board with is editing. Ridiculous. Um But yeah, you know, yeah, I mean it does it is fairly um accurate in its history. Um, Definitely the League of Nations was Wilson's uh, kind of baby, but um, it was kind of an embarrassment that he wasn't able to get the U.S. to join it after he himself kind of started it. So that was definitely, he definitely didn't go out on a high note um, from his presidency. So it, um, it portrayed that accurately, I suppose. But By that point, I'd kind of stopped caring, so it didn't have the kind of emotional weight that it could have to see his legacy kind of unravel at the end. Could have been a very interesting, dramatic ending, uh, but they don't bother with it. And also, and, and the way they drag a lot of things out and then rush through other things, like that the whole thing of his first presidential nomination they drag that convention sequence out where he gets the nomination for like 10 minutes we watch delegations change their minds and go back and forth and then he just wins the election within a minute and then it's the same with his the same with his re-election oh he's not going to win he's not going to win poll show he's not going to win oh he won okay let's move on and so it has no sense of pacing at all yeah. It's
2: it prioritizes the wrong things. What did you think of Knox?
1: He's fine, but he doesn't have I don't think he has a lot to work with. You know, he's just he's just giving speeches. Um and he just kinda has to look austere and important. Um I I really don't think it's a great performance. Uh I think he's a he's a good actor. Um, but yeah, I can't say I'm a fan of the performance.
2: Do you think he needs to act like he's to? Imp- does he need to look important? Because I kept thinking, you know, he's putting on this very regal, um, self-important pose. Um, even from a very early point in the story, mm-hmm. I I didn't know if that was supposed to be a character trait of Wilson, but. Either way, I'm not really a fan of what Knox is doing in terms of internalising emotion and shifts in the character. He comes off as very aloof to me throughout, like very stoic. And because of that, it doesn't allow for much depth. And as as we've said, it's a film that doesn't seem to want to provide us with an idea of why Wilson wanted to become a politician or the reasons he approached politics the way that he did or how he approached love. But, um, yeah, I feel like Knox isn't helping that either. To be honest, it's a very wooden, very um, colourless performance to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And, you know, nobody else in the film does much either. I mean, they're given even less than him. So they just kind of are there throughout. Um, we get Vincent Price very briefly, but not enough to inject any life into the film.
0: No.
2: Um, in terms of the direction, I think it's has its moments. I think it's quite economic at times. There's this really excellently framed scene where his first wife ellen is ill and the family are talking outside the bedroom and there's this beautiful arch in the background and everyone's shot in shadow and you've got this arch lighting up the rest of the room and it's it's quite a solemn sequence and i thought it was really appropriate and well intentioned and i liked the symmetry of it um and then we get another speech <laughs> but Yeah, I think, I think it's, I thought moments of it were absolutely beautiful. I think Leon Shamroy's cinematography and use of lighting is exceptional throughout. There were a lot of jaw-dropping moments um, that I wasn't expecting on that level. So I'm on board with his Oscar win and he actually won three Oscars in four years because he won for... The Black Swan and Lever to Heaven, either side of this. But I think the cinematographic achievement is um, larger than what Henry King is doing. Um, But I don't think it's bad direction from Henry King.
1: Yeah, It's not not bad, it's just I didn't see anything noteworthy about it. Um, Henry King, of course, yet another uh, one who never... Won the award he directed, a lot of best picture nominees. But I think I may have once figured out that he directed the most best picture nominees for someone who never won best director himself. Because uh, I think he directed seven best picture nominees, but he was only nominated twice uh, for for best director, which a bit of a kick in the pants. But um, I. Don't know that I would say this was one of the one of his films that deserved it. But
2: So yeah, a bit of a slog Wilson.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh I I describe the next film we're gonna talk about in kind of the same way, but I think for different reasons. Um The winner this year, uh because of course all those four films we just discussed lost. And the winner went to the year's big winner, the best picture of the year, uh, Leo McCary, with his second best director win uh, for Going My Way.
2: Are we back in Boys Town territory with this one?
1: (laughs) Yeah. For me, at least. Um, Yeah, it it was baffling to me when I watched this for the first time, for like I said, for my Best Picture blog and just I just watched it kind of on the heels of Double Indemnity which I'd, I'd seen before Double Indemnity so I was already kind of uh, on its side but then I saw this one and what was this? Especially following a Casablanca year and Mrs. Miniver and a really strong run and then Going My Way just seemed like kind of a limp film to win Best Picture
2: Yeah, I... I liked that it wasn't as sanctimonious as Boys Town. Like, for me, Boys Town is a worst movie. Um, but at the same time, what about Going My Way is great work. You know, I, I didn't see anything special about it. I didn't see anything above average about it. And, th- like, it's a really odd film. Like, things happen in the movie, but they don't feel particularly consequential like it's like, oh no, the church is burned down, and then you know, Bing Crosby's like, oh well, should we have another tune, lads? Basically, <laughs> <laughs> everything's all right, be okay, whatever. <laughs> it just felt like, you know, nothing could get these people down. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the um, maybe it's the making the best of it during the war. Um, but it it's it sort of like things happen you know, characters come into it and leave and you're like, well, what was the point of that? <laughs> yeah. Very, very strange, the way that it approached the script, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's what I didn't like about it, is that it just things just kind of happen, characters come in, Father O'Malley helps them, and that's it. And then everything, there's no drama, there's no conflict, even. Like... We see the boys steal a chicken, or a turkey, rather. And then the next time we see them, the leader of the gang is like, all right, you fellas, uh, we's gonna be good for Father O'Malley, see? Uh, well, where did that come from? Why, where did he go from street tough to, you know, second in command to a priest? Um, we just skip that, and we go straight to choir practice, uh... And way more songs than this film needs. It doesn't. I mean, obviously, it's Bing Crosby, so he has to sing. Um, but why was this film so musical? It didn't have to be so musical.
2: I think, if we're being cynical, that you know, this does feel like a bit of an opportunistic project. You know, designed to capitalize on on Bing Crosby's popularity as a musician. You know, it feels very designed in that way. There is far too much music in the film that needn't be there. There's even this quite nice scene where O'Malley and Fitzgibbons are having a whiskey before bedtime. And then all of a sudden, you know, Crosby just starts singing Tooraloo-ra or something. I just can... okay. <laughs> just all like completely randomly um, some nonsensical song that didn't have any proper words in it. And then uh, it's the same when he goes to visit Genevieve and we get this three-minute scene of her doing Carmen. You know, it seems to go on forever. And I, there was too much music. There was too much mediocre music. And I think the most convincing plot point in the film might be that the music producer rejects his song, <laughs> which is such a snooze fest of a song, um, for the upbeat one, uh, which I think won the best song Oscar, "Swinging on a Star,"
1: mm-hmm.
2: which I thought was great actually, because I like Crosby's upbeat songs where he does the clever wordplay, like when we reviewed "Road to Utopia," that he had this lovely song anybody's spring in that film which is just really cute you know it's not set in the world delight but it's it's nice but I think his strength were the jaunty numbers because whenever you get the crooning sleepy ones that he seems to be remembered for I just kind of just began to tune out
1: yeah those definitely just kind of bring the film to a grinding halt and just are there to like you say give Crosby a chance to show off his pipes um but yeah the the film as a whole just kind of I don't know seems to seems to me that uh kind of a running on fumes quality like I I think that the glory years of Hollywood's wartime production were over at this point um, and we're left with these kind of limp attempts at wartime Um, feel-goodery. I think this movie might have been better if it had made a couple years before when they were better at it. Um, But now, in 1944, I guess everybody was kind of over it and they were just kind of putting them out on kind of a more assembly line approach. I mean, it was a huge hit, can't be denied. It was the number one film of 1944, which... Definitely didn't hurt its Oscar chances, but yeah, it's it's kind of a kind of a weird and pointless film. I, I can't think of much about it that I like. Uh, maybe maybe you can help me out, but I'm I'm struggling.
2: I mean, I think that the vague, you know, the vague incompetence of it is at least you know makes it not predictable. <laughs> this is like such a backhanded compliment, but. <laughs> You know, it seems for all the world as if the central problem of the film is going to be how will Father O'Malley and Father Fitzgibbons converge and get along. And um, that's resolved pretty quickly, really. And, you know, then we get other stuff instead. And it doesn't go the way you'd expect. There are some strange sequences that, meander from the central plot like we've got the the two lovers um with the soldier going to war and the girls run away from home and then we've got the singer um and then the church burns down and it's sort of like who's (laughs) writing this it's just going from one thing to another um i liked how it wasn't predictable and that it had this scattershot way about it that you know maybe you know it wasn't Manipulative in an obvious way, but but you know I oh there was one moment I liked um, where where the church burns down not that bit um, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being that mean about it and um, that
1: was a riot
2: <laughs> and uh, Fitzgibbons fills the bird bath back up. And says, "Let's make sure the birds keep coming back." And I did have a thing like, "Oh, you know," that warmed the cockles of my heart a little bit. Um, yeah. And I do like Barry Fitzgerald did it. I think he's quite good. And everything involving the golf was amusing. Uh, but you know, I think Fitzgerald. Okay, I borderline on board with the nomination, but not really. Bing Crosby, I think, is not doing anything in this, apart from the singing. But I think, you know, they're really clogging up a lineup that should have included Fred McMurray. And that's a real shame. And you've got Cary Grant in there, who's not particularly good. Charles Boyer, not, to be honest, the star of Gaslight. So. It's a very mer lineup with what they could have chosen.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I, I liked Barry Fitzgerald too, but I guess the question isn't, did he deserve the nomination? Did he deserve two nominations for Father Fitzgibbon?
2: Well, it's probably good it happened so that it could never happen again.
1: <laughs> uh. <laughs> but it would you know it would clear up all these people saying category fraud oh they they nominated that person and supporting it should have been lead and if it hadn't been for this could have had both and then it you know everybody's happy right
2: well it there's no doubt it would have happened again if if they hadn't changed the rules um but this this was kind of growing pains era for the academy wasn't it it wasn't definitely you know, it's in the 10 to 15 year range and it would have happened many other times if they hadn't changed that rule, particularly Kate Winslet, I think in 2008, that definitely would have happened, but many other times throughout history and it just makes the stats look messy. So I'm not on board with that, really. Um,
1: oh no, I'm not suggesting we allow it. That would be uh, that'd be a mess.
2: But do you know that Barry Fitzgerald presented Best Actor?
1: Um, I may have known that at one time, but I didn't know that, now. That's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, so I think that might have given him a clue that he wasn't going to win that one. Uh, and the fact that he'd already won the supporting, but... Mm-hmm. But I think um, Alexander Knox won the Golden Globe for Best Actor, so... Why do you think this won Best Picture?
1: Uh, God knows. Because uh, it's mediocre enough to win Best Picture, yeah. Um, sometimes, for some reason, mediocrity just rises to the top. I think we've seen that in recent year, And... Um, yeah, so sometimes it just gets a push at the right time or it's the number one box office, so they say, yeah, must be, must have something going for it. It's Bing Crosby, very popular. Leo McCary, they liked him. Um, and yeah, just kind of an escapist feel-good uh, movie, I guess, which I guess also explains why Bells of St. Mary got nominated the year after that.
2: Yeah, and, you know, as past Picture winners go, this is sort of on the the only real one that's pure escapism, because Casablanca does have the war as a backdrop. And, you know, How Green Was My Valley is a hard-hitting drama, Mrs. Miniver's pure propaganda, Lost Weekend's a, a drama about alcoholism. So you do have serious issues, even in the romantic winner, um during the war whereas this feels just like tosh basically and you know let's have a sing and dance and pretend nothing serious is going on
1: yeah is the war even i don't does the war even get mentioned in it because it it's supposed to be
2: well the soldier goes off to war that's about it
1: oh yeah i guess so i yeah i guess so but yeah it's about it Hmm.
2: I also thought the sound recording was particularly bad for a film about music. I thought the the sound recording during the scenes of dialogue was behind the times.
1: Yeah, no, it was pretty bad. And maybe that's why this was one of the few categories it didn't get nominated in.
2: Do we want to mention Leo McCary? i <laughs> Is there anything we could, you know, say that he exhibited to improve this, or?
1: Um, I really can't think of too much that he did as director that made this any less unbearable. Um, I mean, he, he's really to blame for this, right? It was his story. He produced it. He directed it. Um, so no, uh, this is his fault. I don't think can.
2: Yeah, there's nothing to speak of here at all. I, I actually, I mean, there's not much noteworthy. I think in his filmography, which sounds harsh, but um, apart from the awful truth, which I think is a great movie, but not because of him. Um, you know, I wouldn't say he had any classics make way for tomorrow. People really liked that. I thought it was all right, but in general, he's not considering he won two Oscars for directing. He's his filmography is not, you know, um, not any great shakes.
1: No. I mean, he also did duck soup, which is a great Marx Brothers film, but again, I don't know how much he had to do with that. Um, And then he, yeah, his, the rest of his filmography is not that great. He did Love Affair, which is pretty bad. Um, so, yeah, don't really know what to say about his win here.
2: Let's move on. <laughs>
1: yes, good idea. Uh, we have some listener questions. And um, I want to let's open with Zita's questions. They're always the most fun. Um, her first question. Did Father O'Malley copulate, great word, copulate with Genevieve Linden, the singer uh, who he, well, what what is it exactly? He, They were going out, right, and then they went long distance while she toured <laughs> Europe, and then um, she didn't get his last letter explaining that he'd uh, gone and become a priest. Um but the question is, when they weren't long distance, when they were just, uh, you know, going steady or whatever the kids called it back in the day, uh, did they copulate, fornicate? You know, I don't like hmm.
2: that word. Which one? <laughs> copulate. I don't know. <laughs> just, um, it's. I think it's too formal a word for this. But there's certainly an implication. Okay, screw. Yeah, did he screw her? So there's certainly an implication that something has happened between them. To be fair to Father O'Malley, it could have happened before he joined the church, in which case there's no ethical issue. It might be that the romance never took off physically. It might be that she was so good in bed he thought, I'm never going to get anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) better so I may as well join the church I don't know um but you know the fact we don't get we just get a hint of that is just typical of um how random and underdeveloped the movie is overall and leaving loose ends in every scene so
1: yeah yeah because they keep they keep you know kind of dangling that why did he become a priest thing uh, at several points in the film, people ask him and he never answers, and we never do find out. So yeah, it's just one more example of his sordid pre-priesthood path that we just don't know. Um, I'm going to say in my head, no, uh, just because it's it's more fun that way.
2: <laughs> okay, um, Zeta also asks... Uh, Why did audiences have the hots for clergymen in the 1940s?
1: Well, they weren't all Father O'Malley, were they? We also had uh, Gregory Peck in The Keys to the Kingdom, which, you know, you're going to have the hots for him. But um, it it is interesting, yeah, that there does seem to have been a brief period in the mid-40s when uh, we had priests playing, if not romantic leads, at least played by men and actors who were known for being romantic leads. Um, so, interesting phenomenon. I'm not sure if I can answer that authoritatively.
2: Maybe they just saw Boys Town and thought, I won an Oscar. I'm going to be a priest. Um, <laughs> but Maybe. Yeah, Keys of the Kingdom's an interesting one because... It, Gregory Peck's character kind of starts off as an O'Malley and ends up as a Fitzgibbons by the end when he gets passed <laughs> over for the Bishop role and all that. Um, I can't imagine anyone thinks a dog collar is a turn-on if we're talking hot, the hots, actual hots. Um, yeah. At least not this kind of dog collar. Uh, but yeah, I I, <laughs> I don't know if you've it's seen like Fleabag. unattainability
1: but... or something. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen Fleabag, no.
2: Oh, season two of Fleabag is all about her having the hots for a priest. So I'm sure there are people out there. Um, Not for me, Um, but I'm really glad that we didn't end up with a priest role nominated every year, because that would be just too much.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm glad that Hollywood or audiences or whoever kind of got over it fairly quickly. Uh, it, was a, it was a brief upsurge, and then it kind of died out again. Um, Patrick Stokes asked, You can give Hitchcock five Oscar nominations for which five films? Parentheses, I'm guessing not Lifeboat. Um, why? Why Why not Lifeboat?
2: Uh, I well, I'm not saying Lifeboat. <laughs>
1: well, I, I don't know if I... I don't know if I'd put it in his top five, but I'm also not going to be dismissive of it.
2: I think this is a very naughty question from Patrick, and I found this very difficult to answer. But I have narrowed it down. And my five are Psycho, Vertigo, Rear Window, so many O's. Strangers on a Train, which I think there's some incredible sequences in Str- Strangers on a Train and especially the ending I love. Um, and The Lady Vanishes, which is my favourite of his films. Maybe not so much for the direction, but I think it's a perfect movie. So I've got to have that in, which means I'm leaving out both Rebecca and Notorious, which is unthinkable, honestly. But uh, there's some great lesson on works that he's done sabotage from his early days and frenzy i really like from his later days uh, both really good too
1: yeah well we have we have a couple overlaps there i am also gonna give it a, a nod to the lady vanishes because it is a superb film um i can't leave rebecca off my list so the lady vanishes rebecca uh, shadow of a doubt from a few years after that the year before lifeboat i think um probably my in my top three hitchcocks and and just superbly directed um i you know the the shot of joseph cotton giving his monologue uh very early on is is so chilling and the slow zoom it's it's amazing shadow of a doubt for sure um psycho yes and um somebody's that that's four so yeah my my fifth would probably be notorious i have to say um another some really great shots in there really great staging and just to me those five i think are probably of i think i've seen most of his films i want to say and i think those kind of exemplify him most to me so yeah fantastic no slight uh, on vertigo though so um also a classic
2: and we've not even mentioned um some of the others like saboteur 39 steps and the birds
1: the Birds, of course, yeah. The Birds is just so goofy. Uh, it's, hard for, <laughs> it's hard for me to get behind it. I love it, but it's just so goofy. Um, but...
2: Those damn blondes bringing destruction to our town.
1: <laughs> As they do. <laughs> and finally, and this is a good segue into our next segment, uh, Andrew Carden asks, why do you think George Cooker missed for Gaslight? And that's a that's a good segue into where we talk about snubs. Um well let's get that let's start with that. Do you think uh George Cougar's not being in the field for Gaslight was it a snub?
2: Well it's the closest thing to a snub I think we have this year. Um the thing about Gaslight is you know, not everyone knows this, but it was a, made as a British film in nineteen forty by Thorold Dickinson and Dinah would played the lead role. And I actually think that's the better version of the two. I agree. It's a strange miss for Kuka, but there are some big names he's competing against here. Um, I think the director of the other Best Picture nominee being left out is a bit more understandable, though. So I do think this is the biggest thing we have to a snob.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Um, And yeah, may as well plug the 1940 British film, which I agree is a better movie. Um, Really, really good film. And as I recall, um, part of the deal when MGM bought the rights was that all of the copies of the 1940 film be destroyed so that it wouldn't compete with their version And uh, fortunately, that was not. They did not carry that out completely because the film does survive and is available. So, uh, anybody who has not seen the nineteen forty British version of Gaslight, uh, definitely seek it out. Yeah. Not only Diana Winyard, but Anton Walbrook uh, is is phenomenal as well.
2: Yeah, and you know. We have a Diana Winyard performance that can atone for Cavalcade. <laughs> so that helps.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, other snubs. Yeah. So John Cromwell for Since You Went Away uh, would be the other Best Picture nominated uh, director not to get director nomination. Other than that, m- maybe Preston Sturges for Hail the Concrete Hero. Yeah. 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 Although oh, he was very underserved movie. in general mm. by the Academy, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um but uh he had a unique distinction this year. He had two films in the original screenplay category uh that he wrote. Um which is I think probably the only time it's ever happened a writer having two solo uh nominations within the original screenplay category in one year, so that's a pretty pretty high achievement.
2: So shall we talk about why Leo won?
1: <laughs> I I'm guessing it wasn't that close, considering Going My Way kind of ran away with most of the big Oscars this year, um, and I think he just I think he just won uh, for name recognition and the popularity of the movie.
2: Yeah, I don't think it was particularly close. I think you know clearly Going My Way is the popular pick particularly in terms of pop culture at the time and the presence of Bing Crosby. But Wilson is definitely the patriotic choice. So I can certainly see Henry King being a comfortable runner up here. and But I, I don't think close enough to have been able to mount a challenge.
1: Wider observations on 1944. We've already mentioned Fitzgerald's famous double nomination, um, but uh, anything else noteworthy? Well,
2: obviously dominated by Going My Way and Wilson. um, Cary Grant's first nomination, of course, for oh, second nomination, sorry, and final nomination in Best Actor for None But The Lonely Heart, which... Sadly, is is not you know peak Cary Grant, either, along with Penny Serenade, um, but Ethel Barrymore also won Best Supporting Actress in that year too, um, to add to the um, the Barrymores' clutch of trophies throughout the years.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, and we also have Jennifer Jones back. Uh, in those few years when they were just nominating her for anything, um, has the longest performance um, to receive a nomination for Supporting Actress by, by total screen time. She's in about an hour and 15 minutes of Since You Went Away and nominating, nominated as a Supporting Actress.
2: Yeah, which is strange because she'd already won a leading actress Oscar, the year before, so it feels like they could have campaigned them both in lead, but um, obviously they didn't want to put her up against Claudette Colbert. I quite like Since He Went Away, actually. Um, I just thought it was, you know, sort of, I couldn't be bothered to dislike it. I thought, you know, it, it's a nothing film, really. It's a propaganda piece again, but I thought it was fine, and I thought Jones was pretty good in it, but I'm pleased they didn't nominate um, Cromwell instead of some of these other Best Director nominees.
1: Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't like it at all. I hated it, to be honest. Um, Maybe I need to watch it again. But yeah, it's just kind of so stale for me Um, after watching a lot of propaganda movies throughout the war, but a lot of better ones. Um, and just this and Wilson and going my way was just convincing me that Hollywood was just running out of steam and, you know, thank goodness the war ended because who knows what we would have gotten in 1945 if there hadn't been peace. (laughs) Okay. I mean, thank God the war ended for a lot of better reasons. Um, but this, this is a reason too.
2: (laughs) Um, Any other wider observations?
1: Um, don't think so, no. Um, just kind of that it would take a real superhero to watch all of the nominated films for this year, because there's so many nominations in the -the below-the-line categories. Um, I'm really happy they eventually figured out that limiting each category to five was a smart move.
2: Yeah. Um, and some interesting films nominated in supporting categories. Dragon Seed, have you seen that? No. That looks kind of grim (laughs) (laughs) uh, in terms of racially. Um, But because we didn't have as many categories back then, so for Wilson and Going My Way to clean up 12 between them, you know, is a big signal that, that they were the head of the pack And you've even got Gaslight with two. So if you take those away, there wasn't much room for any of the other films this year to get any Oscars, really. Um, But, yeah. The Seventh Cross gets a nomination in Supporting Actor. Claude Rains nominated um, again um, for Mr. Skeffington, which is a real chore of a movie uh, that I... Happily Never See Again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I still have to get to it myself one of these days.
2: And I think the first time that Best Picture had won Best Song, Going My Way winning for Swinging on a Star, which I do think is a great win. Probably its best win, or the only one it deserved.
1: Yeah. Yeah, good song. And yeah, I believe you're right. First, First time those two aligned, Um, and it doesn't happen often, I think it's probably the category that lines up with Best Picture the least um, out of all of them, I would have to check my spreadsheet to be sure.
2: And we haven't mentioned Meet Me in St. Louis, um, St. Louis, but yeah, that didn't get many nominations, hence why I didn't include it on the snubs, but everyone, you know, Really loves that film with Vincente Minnelli and Judy Garland. Um, It's a good movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it could have been in there. So, want to rank them? Let's do it. You go first. All right. Uh, Number five, I have Henry King. Um, While I may agree that he does some more interesting things than Leo McCary... Wilson is just such a drag, and it's a longer drag than going my way. So just in terms of how long I had to endure it, um, I felt I had to punish him. So I put him at the bottom. Number four, I have Leo McCary, for obvious reasons. Number three, I have Hitchcock. Um, I think he did some really interesting things um, with Lifeboat but maybe not anything too outstanding, especially if you're familiar with his style. Um, number two, I have Preminger. Um, absolutely phenomenal direction of Laura. As you say, it's a, it's as close to a perfect film as you can get, unless you're Double Indemnity. Um, I have Billy Wilder at number one, um, because, I mean for all of the great directing in this movie, all the great framing, all the great synergy he had with his cinematographer and his set designers, and just everything came together so well uh, in this movie. And, you know, more or less kind of invented a genre uh, while he was at it, so it's hard to hard not to put him in the top spot for me.
2: Okay. Um, we got many similarities. Uh, number five, I've got Leo McCary, because... I couldn't speak to any particular moment in the film where I thought his direction was particularly thoughtful or stood out or improved the movie. Whereas I did see some moments in Wilson, um, and that's why I've got Henry King in number four, that were fairly artistic and were trying to, um, to enhance the experience somewhat. 3 i've got alfred hitchcock also um can't believe i'm putting hitchcock at 3 in any year but it, it it you know the quality is high here and i think it is more of a technical achievement than it is um anything visual on you know that we can see and um it's not top tier hitchcock as a movie i don't think um and number 2 i've got billy wilder i thought um, he and the cinematography for Dublin Demity were great I had some couple of minor issues with the script but um, it's just great work but I have to have Otto Preminger at number one because I thought Laura was maybe one of the best movies I've ever seen and I thought his direction of it was extremely well considered loved the last shot I think it was amazing Um. And yeah, I think, I think he did a great job, um, but it's a very strong top three this year.
1: Definitely. So yeah, I I had a feeling you were going to, um, come in with, uh, Preminger on top. So we have a website, it's com. We are on Twitter at categoricallyo, o. um, Come on, give us a follow, listen to us on your preferred podcast platform, uh, leave us a review. Uh, we're always looking to hear how people, uh, what people think of it. Next week, we are going to be taking a little break from our regular format um, because we're going to be watching some films from the BFI's London Film Festival currently going on and um, which films are we going to be talking about? I think uh, the whale is one of the ones we'll be discussing. Yeah. Um the the banshees of Incheon. Yeah, and also
2: uh, Park Chan Wook's decision to leave as well. Um. uh the sun. I'll be able to give a uh, a little summary of the sun, and also some other um some of the foreign language Oscar or international feature film Oscar uh, submissions this year from Bolivia, Sweden, uh, Pakistan, and Morocco. So, yeah.
1: Very exciting. I am not as exposed to them here in Birmingham, but I will do my best to see as many of those as I can and hopefully be able to weigh in.
2: Yeah, so we'll be uh, assessing their film's quality and then we'll also be talking about potential Oscar chances and whether we think they're going to go the whole course so
0: yeah
1: so thanks for joining us tune in in a couple of weeks we'll see you then
0: This road leads to Rainbowville Going my way up ahead is Bluebird Hill Going my way Just pack a basket full Wishes and off you start with Sunday morning in your heart. Round the bend you'll see a sign, Dreamer's Highway happiness is down the line going my way